everybody. Welcome to the New World Pictures Podcast bonus episode interview. We've got a great interview. I can't so excited for this. My name is Ryan. With me as always is Mark. Interview. And Erica. Great interview. It is such a good interview. We are speaking with Mark Showstrom, who has so many credits to his name. He is a uh, makeup effects artist and got his start with New World. And we're going to talk with him at New World. But of course, he did so many things. Phantasms, some Nightmare on Elm Street. His, if we talked about his entire uh, filmography, we would be here forever. And in fact, it is a long interview because we do talk about a whole bunch of stuff, including very quickly his work in Slumber Party Massacre. Uh, we talk about his work in Forbidden World, Android, Raw Courage, The Boys Next Door, him not working on Heathers, how he didn't work in Creepshow 2, and other things as well, New World. Also, some Nightmare on Elm Street 3 stories, Evil some Dead Phantasm 2? stories, Evil Dead 2. We, we talked about so much. So, look, let's just get to the interview, right? Am I right, guys? Yeah. Yeah, let's dive in. Here's us talking to Mark Showstrom. You know, it's funny. I just saw your Twitter thing on forbidden world and i mean god it's showing in la i should go see it uh and i started thinking going geez it's like exactly 40 years ago it was in may i was working on it may 82 yeah and, uh, wow uh, yeah a lot of the movies we'll be talking about will are basically going to be reaching their 40th anniversary because you worked on a lot of movies from 82 yeah well you know it's funny i gave a uh, uh, one of those rare interviews on a film i did 42 years ago on Friday, I gave this Blu-ray interview, and and it was a movie I didn't really care about. I don't think I'd ever seen it. And I, they started asking me questions. I'm like, geez, I don't know. You know, <laughs> what actor was it for? I don't remember. But everything but the New World era, I remember vividly. I remember people, story, images. It was really an incredible time. So I'm more than happy to talk about anything and i have some stories <laughs> oh good, good well we are going to definitely ask you some annoying new world centric questions about no, little, uh, tiny details so if you do happen to not remember not a problem but we're, we're just going to try to ask because you were there and we're so interested uh in that but um <laughs> was was the move was the movie you were doing a blu-ray interview for to all a good night no, that in fact, that's the only one. They, it was called The Black Room, and uh, okay. that was January 82. Before that, no, January 81, before that, I'd done To All A Good Night, my first movie, which was December 1980. And I, every time I think I'm never going to get called in another Blu-ray, they keep reaching further back. I'm going, well, what's <laughs> next? There's only one mark, you know? <laughs> so kind of crazy. So uh, if you don't mind, I know you've, you've mentioned this a lot, but I know you got your start very young in your interest in um, makeup effects. But I think what's fascinating to me is that you also, like you you were basically self-taught. Like you got into yeah. special makeup effects, I think with Bride of Frankenstein, and then you just taught yourself how to do it. I think that's fascinating. Well, these days there are schools, West Coast, East Coast, New York, Florida, LA, Back then, I mean, up into the 80s, we were all self-taught. Rick Baker, Dick Smith, everybody was self-taught. And when I learned, it was uh, way, way, you know, decades before the Internet. And you had these things called books, you know, from a <laughs> library. And uh, I know people these days don't know what they are. but um, I've heard, I've heard legend. I've heard of these. <laughs> yeah. We've book, heard. by the way, is... is 
there's two O's in book, so you know. Um, no, I mean, these days, if you if you go on YouTube and click, you know, how do I make a zombie, do a, do a zombie makeup, you're going to get, you know, 20,000 things, most of them shot by some lunatic in his bedroom, and none of them very good. I mean, if you wanted to learn how to do something back in, you know, the 60s or 70s, you look at a magazine, you read a book, and, you know, all these pictures, oh, buy this, you know, this type of grease paint and this type of nose putty. And you just look at the pictures and you try it out. And there's nobody to tell you if it's right or wrong. You just kind of gauge when it looks okay. And uh, it was a great way to learn. I mean, you learn by trial and error. And, and when you make the errors, like with anything, that's, that's the, way you learn, the way you learn and you do it better the next time. You know, everybody was taught, self-taught. Mike Westmore, you name it. Rob Bottin were all self-taught. And you, you basically would just you put it on your, use your family as guinea pigs and just put the makeup on them and try it out? Well, you know, that's, uh, you know, naturally when you're, uh, how old was I? First makeup kits, you know, nine or 10 years old. My uncle was a dentist. He was retiring. He gave me all his dental tools and wax and everything. So I learned how to make teeth. But yeah, who are, you know, who are your first victims? Your family and then your best friend. And uh, so I started on my, uh, I think the first makeup was my mom. I had this 1969 Max Factor grease paint, and I turned her into kind of a East Indian-looking woman. And, you know, later tried my dad, my brother, a lot on my, most of it on myself, though, you know, because, okay. you know, mm-hmm. you, can, you can get your family to sit for the first makeup or two, and then all, all of a sudden they realized this, this isn't too much fun. And well, why don't you try it on yourself? Oh. No, but, you know, when, you're, when you're 10 or 11 and sitting in your room and learning about makeup, and you've got a mirror. I mean, yeah, you try everything on yourself. But uh, it was a family. And then I had a friend when I moved overseas. I had a friend in Jim who was, uh, I think by then I was 13. He was 11. He became my victim for um, like everything. And he... He'd sit for a werewolf, anything, and if you didn't want to sit, he'd say, "You sit. I have to do this now, you know." And I'd force him to watch *Planet of the Apes* and *The Alligator People*, and he still remembers all that. <laughs> oh wow! And so, you, when you eventually move out to LA, and this is, I think, in the late '70s, you were you were ready to break into movies, and you kind of started out. I mean, not your first credit, but you started out. Uh, one of your earliest, at least, was *The Slumber Party Massacre* with New World Pictures. Well, no. I mean, I, I moved to L.A. in October 79 with the intention of getting into either music or makeup, whichever kind of happened first, and it happened to be movies. And my first year and a half, or maybe almost two years, was working on AFI, American Film Institute Shorts. Okay. Anything from a, a, a two-week commitment to a much longer deal. And I, that's where I cut my teeth is on the AFI Shorts, and that's where I met all my first contacts. And okay. it wasn't until 82, early 82, that I got in at New World Pictures. And although Slumber Party Massacre might be listed in a particular place on IMDb, they only list things according to release date. So right. if I look at it, it my memory is like, I, I think my memory of what I worked on in what order, mm-hmm. not what you know release date they had. So. Right. Yeah, like the black room was really early for me, and it's like my ninth listing. No, that was like my second movie, and <laughs> it didn't come out for two or three years because it was so bad. So then they put it later. But <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, but 
I think <laughs> no, I... you you did, and I think in, in to all a good night when you did that in 1980, that I think is where you met Joel Swasson. Yes, he was I the met boom Joel. operator. He was, he, was the, he was the boom man. We were all uh, shooting in a uh, big house in like a boarding school out in Santa Barbara, and because of money, we all the crew slept upstairs and we shot downstairs. We were sleeping in the building when they're shooting the whole crew cast and crew was living there wow. for like 10 days or whatever it took. And, uh, yeah, it was kind of cool. <laughs> yeah. Joel got to, got to witness my first major fuck up on an effect in front of camera. Cause <laughs> yeah, he, he was, he was holding the boom and I'm trying to cut this girl's throat and it didn't quite work out. And, you know, we had to redo it, but yeah, that's where I met Joel. A lot of people on that. Wow. <laughs> So, so how did you start then working on Slumber Party Massacre? How did you get that particular gig, which I think shot in July of 1981, if IMDb is well, correct? That's, I think that was right before working at New World uh, at Hammond Lumber and all that. I worked only uh, one night on Slumber Party Massacre. I did not go to the set. I worked in the lab at Makeup Effects Labs. They were doing okay. some, some effect of a hand getting chopped off. And so I was making this whole arm, a gelatin arm, for the hand being cut off. Right. And I remember it was a grueling night. It was an all-nighter. I mean, it's like 12, 15 hours to get this thing ready. Um, that was my first experience of doing an all-nighter. They didn't even bring me in until like 7 p.m. And it's just like, well, you're going to be up all night because it has to be on set at, you know, whatever time. So that was my uh, involvement in Slumber Party Massacre. Not too much. Did you Did you meet anybody for like... Aaron Lipstadt actually did work on that movie and you eventually worked with him later on at New World. Did you, so, but you didn't have any interaction with anybody that worked on that movie at that point? No, I just had uh, just the people at Makeup Effects Labs and uh, yeah, just one night commitment. You know, got my 100 bucks or whatever and went home. <laughs> and Sorry this is the around the sad the, tale there. But. Oh no, 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 no. not I, at I, all, not I, at all. How how did you how did you get that gig? I mean, how did they find you? Um, I think I'd met a guy named Dave Miller who ended up doing the first Freddy Krueger makeup. I met Dave. Where did I meet meet Dave? Gosh, I'm gonna have to think a minute here. I don't remember where I met Dave, but he and I hit it off, and he he knew a lot of the people because he'd been here a couple of years already. And he was always recommending me for jobs. So that's how I got that one, as I recall. Yeah, that's right. It was because he knew the people at Makeup Effects Labs. And that was my introduction to them as via Dave. I think he was too busy. So that's how I got that. <laughs> you know, when I when I moved here, I didn't know anybody. Sure. I had a contact address for John Chambers because I'd written him, you know, the man who did the original Planet of the Apes. But I didn't know anybody. And I got my first AFI gig by answering an ad in Dramalogue. And that's where I met a lot of people I ended up working with on all the New World pictures and all the early projects I met. Michael Murphy's uh, partner to be, or, or Joel's partner to be Michael Murphy on the first thing I ever did. And he, he got that job by answering a Dramalogue ad up in San Francisco for the same movie. So you meet a small group of people on a little independent movie or whatever, and that leads to friendships and more jobs and uh, you know kind of explodes out from there was right. this around this time that you were also worked on the sword and the sorceress sorcerer excuse me yeah that was at makeup effects labs as well so i uh 
not an all-nighter, but yeah, it was doing it was all lab work on that movie. I didn't go to set. Okay. Uh, another interesting uh, movie that just got a new Blu-ray release as well. So I don't know. Maybe really? I don't know if they I don't know if they knocked on your door for that one. Um, <laughs> I don't know they, they they knocked on my door for Beastmaster, and I you know yes. I did a lot in Beastmaster, but uh, again, it wasn't one of those memorable things and. They sent me the list of questions. I had to scratch my head and go, geez, I don't remember. You know, let me think about this a while. <laughs> but yeah. Do you remember the fun times or the really shitty times? You remember the really great people or the really bad people? And it's everything else in between becomes kind of a blur. So Right, right. Yeah. So I'm not sure what which people we're going to talk about in this one, but when you started working on Forbidden World, which uh, does have its it's 40th anniversary this 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 wow. month. Um, we're, we're we're in May <laughs> right now. Uh, so a 40th anniversary for Forbidden World. How did you get? How did you come to to that project? You know, let me think about this a second here. It's I October 1981, I believe, is the is how that started, or when um, that shot. I don't know if it shot then. It might have. I know that Android shot in June of 82 and they were really close together. I think it was, if not late 81, it was early spring of 82. And uh, I'm not sure how I got called on Forbidden World. I met a guy, and I don't remember how I met him, a guy named Anthony Shile, and he was working for John Beekler on Forbidden World. He was probably the guy that gave me the, the intro there because John was looking for more people because it was quite a, an intensive makeup effect show. And I don't remember, you know, the actual introduction, but I remember going down, meeting John Beekler, him looking at my portfolio, and basically taking me to the set and like, okay, now you're doing this. And uh, so that's, it, was, it was very rapid. And uh, on set, I met a guy named Bart Mixon, who is still a really close friend of mine all these years later. And uh, Bart had flown out from Texas to work on it for a week. And uh, we hit it off. But yeah, the whole New World thing, just came with a phone call and uh, went down there and spent between Android and Forbidden World, you know, probably a good two to three months down there working on both of those projects and uh, a lot of set work, a lot of lab work going back and forth. It was a blast. It was really a lot of fun. Yeah, the, I, I was just watching it again the other day, Forbidden World, and I, I, it's amazing how well I think the effects hold up. Like the goo that surrounds that body that's on the on the operating table. I think it's Michael yeah. Bowen's character. It just looks nasty. It just <laughs> if it looks like it would be like a messy set to work on. But uh, I think that's all methocellulose, I think, or or something. The, the, yeah, the methocellulose made yeah. from trees, and it comes in. They send it to us uh, from a place called Trias Sciences, which was a. Uh, lab supply for schools and whatnot around the country. And, uh, you know, any chemical you wanted, you can get there from them in like a thimble full or a truck full. I mean, so we would get this methyl cellulose, this slime delivered in like 55 gallon drums. And, uh, wow. and it varied, you had different, you had thin, which wasn't really thin. It was like syrup or you had thick, which was like, uh, you could literally open up the container and scoop out with your hand it was this big blob of jelly in your hand that was the thick stuff and and we'd pat that all over these bodies and then drip it with the slimy stuff afterwards uh 
it was very effective, very clever. Um, things were done chicly, but yeah, I mean, they do look pretty cool. I mean, the uh, a lot of the bodies were just latex and polyfilm and very crude, but when you covered them with veins and some blood and, you know, 20 gallons of methyl cellulose slime, <laughs> it, all, it all worked. It all worked for what you needed. And uh, yeah, the little creatures, the, the portions on the floor kind of looked like, I don't know, pods or whatever, the clear sort of clear yellow things. Right. I think they were on the floor. They were just big pieces of vacuum form plastic covered with methyl cellulose. I mean, very clever. You know, it cost literally dollars. But uh, wow. and John Bigler knew what he was doing as far as Roger Corman and being low budget. And, you know, you've got to deliver and it's got to look decent and be on time and not cost a lot of money. And he knew how to work that very well. Do you remember what um, he first asked you to do once you got on on the show? I do. Yeah, basically, I I had to go to set and wrangle the tumor. You know, that the tumor <laughs> was. I mean, all the bodies, all the bodies were plastic, rubber, and you know, methyl cellulose, whatever. This fucking tumor, man. Yeah, they gave it to me in a standard <laughs> brand's paint bucket, like a double bucket, so it doesn't leak, and it had. Big carousel of blood in it and this piece of rubber, which I guess was intestine. I don't know what, but it smelled like something dead because it was. It was a piece of, a, I don't know, pig liver or something. Uh, it was real guts. Oh, wow. And yeah. John brought it out of the fridge and gave it to me. And we could smell this thing fucking building away. It was horrendous. <laughs> oh. And, oh. you know, pe- people would smell you coming before they heard you or saw you. And they just start <laughs> running away. Ew. And, you know, I'm kind of, for my first thought was, I, don't, I probably didn't ask him at the time, but why are you using something real? I mean, you don't need to. Finally, people figured it out. And everybody who was assigned the tumor wrangling. Just, just, it was horrendous. I mean, you literally, you'd come home and you could smell the guts on your on your shirt and your pants. Sure. The, the yeah. smell of the, the dead animal did not leave you. And finally, somebody accidentally, you know, on purpose, lost the real tumor and we replaced it with a latex one and things were okay after that. But that was one of the early <laughs> things I did. And, and, you know, we both traded off. Okay, you, you got the tumor for the next two hours. No, I don't fucking want it. You do it, you know. <laughs> Now, that wasn't the only smelly thing on this set because Forbidden World also used some real animal carcasses as well. No, no. That's, I was reading just before I called you, I was reading the IMDb trivia thing, and it says they used real animals. No, they didn't. There, they didn't. Okay. Not that, one. No, that's all bullshit. And uh, I know because I was there and I wrangled the dead animals. They were all polyfoam and fake fur this stuff called fun fur that you can get actually at a furniture store and it's really cheap you hot glue it to the polyfoam forms and bingo you have a dead chimpanzee or a dead dog or cat or whatever no there were no animals real animals on that i would have been outraged you know okay and i believe i'd remember that plus you already had to deal with the tumor so you don't you don't need anything else thrown into the mix no, remind me when we get to the end after filming to tell you the chimpanzee story. <laughs> it's uh, a good one. <laughs> the chimpanzee story, I've been forbidden world. Yeah. If you want to hear it now. I'll tell yeah, you now. yeah. Okay. Basically, after filming Forbidden World before Android, John kept me on. He kept Anthony and I on to, you know, clean up inventory, 
kind of prep for the next show. And I believe it was a Saturday because John wasn't there. It was just Anthony and I. And we're cleaning up. And, you know, John gave us whatever instructions, you know, store the, the fake dead animals in a box and put them over here in this building or whatever. So we're going through the carcasses of, you know, the polyfoam and fake fur, chimpanzee, dog, whatever. And we're out in the parking lot kind of getting ready to finalize this process. And uh, we see this helicopter overhead. And it's kind of low. I don't know if it was a news helicopter or what. It wasn't police. I know that. <laughs> we'd, we'd have been in jail. But we thought we'd have a little fun. And we, we started, we dragged this chimpanzee out. And now if you're up in a helicopter, you're looking down this parking lot in Venice on a Saturday afternoon, you see somebody dragging a chimpanzee out of the building. You're going to kind of circle back and have another look, <laughs> which is what they did. Only this time they're getting lower. So Anthony comes out with a big stick and he starts beating the chimp. So this cir- helicopter is circling and getting lower and lower. And then we start pulling its limbs off. And I have no idea what the people in the helicopter must have thought. But, but it was, we're just, we're just playing it straight. Of course, we're laughing. They can't really see that we're laughing our asses off. And then finally, we pull the, the chimp's head off and we put it on the spike and put it on the front of my Volkswagen. I think by that time, the helicopter guys figured out this is all a, a movie thing or a joke because they took off. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was priceless, you know. Oh, <laughs> the chimpanzee at the lumber yard. <laughs> yeah, it's all over the news. Uh, you know, hooligans dismember chimpanzee in Venice. No, that was the last we heard of it. So I... Maybe the helicopter guy went home and said to his wife, honey, you wouldn't believe what I saw today. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure this story sure. has been told a hundred times by people you don't know and never will. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, stuff like that, hap- that weird stuff kind of happens in L.A. a lot because it's a movie town. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not unusual for makeup effects people to drive down the freeway with a body in the back of a truck and get pulled over by CHP. It happens quite a lot, you know. You'd be surprised. But people in this town are savvy. You know, they know they shoot movies all over the place. Oh, they must have figured out it's fake because and there you go. That's the chimp story. But isn't didn't that also like somebody call the police when you guys were shooting Nightmare on Elm Street three and it was the scene where Jennifer yeah, goes into the yeah. T V and they, they they saw it from a wind from down below, I guess. No, I, they, I, they saw them as a severed head of Brooke Bondy and uh, somebody called, got my license number, called the police. It was a long, this whole saga that happened one night. And I had the entire South Pasadena policeman, police department surrounding my house. And uh, yeah, that was kind of crazy. And uh, wow. a couple of years ago, actually, I went to the police department because I wanted to get a copy of the report. I thought, I always wanted to see the police report for this, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, because they, they went to some trouble. Well, they went to some trouble to find me because the lady on the freeway uh, was shocked, but she got my license number, which was my truck, which was registered at my workshop because it was a work vehicle. Mm-hmm. And they went to the shop and it's just a cinder block building, but then they tracked me down and found out where I lived. And I'm in the house. I'm asleep on the floor upstairs. And, and they looked, they told me later, they looked for the flashlight in my truck and they saw some blood on the inside of the door. And that's when I was upstairs, and this was a huge house where you never could hear anybody knocking on the door, and I heard this. And I, it just jolted me up, and that's when I poked my head out. I didn't see anybody, and I looked on either side, and I could see cops, and they had their hands in their guns, and 
yeah, they were surrounding the entire house with cars and cops and detectives and, uh, yeah, they didn't have a much of a sense of humor about it. But uh, well, I went to the South. I went to the South Pass Police Department a couple of years ago to ask about getting a copy of the report. I thought this would be interesting, but they'd purged all the the paper reports and uh, apparently no longer exists, which is kind of sad. Yeah, and this is all because a woman saw like the body in the back of your truck and thought something terrible had gone down. No, she saw it in the cab. My my friend was with. Oh, me really? Bryant, and he's. He was holding up the head and it was all covered in blood. And I said, Brian, put that down. Somebody's going to see it. And that's exactly what happened. (laughs) The cops told me it was called a quote unquote report of a mutilated woman. So yeah, they took it pretty seriously. Wow. Well, I mean, kudos to your effect because it apparently was, was really, (laughs) people saw it and believed it. So I guess if I was a cop, you know, before like that, you have no idea what you're getting into. So extreme caution, you know. Uh, to go there back go. to uh, for, Forbidden World, um, can you were you guys working on set a lot at Lumberyard? And and if you were not, where did where did you guys go to like bring things to the set? Well, Hammond Lumber, which is where New World Pictures was in Venice, California, had a quite a big. Uh, quite a big area and as you walked in there was a parking lot and then you walked further and the sound stages were on the left and some of the uh, rooms that housed where the second unit shooting of miniatures and opticals was on the left all the production offices and on the other side on the right was the makeup effects lab mm-hmm. so literally if you were in the makeup lab they could just walk across the parking lot which is not that big Mm. knock on your door and say hey, we need you on set in two minutes and you can just pick up your stuff and be there so everything was very close so when i wasn't on set i would be on the lab and uh yeah there was a lot of set work though it was a, it was a blast i mean i walked into this not reading the script but immediately i could see walking into the set it's mad scientists scantily clad women and monsters i mean how how can you go wrong with that combination <laughs> right <laughs> you can't as it turns out, um, I, no, I was watching no. the um, magic the, formula. That's that's Corman's. That's his, that's how he made everything. Um, just yeah, about. True. <laughs> um, did you ever meet Roger Corman? Did you ever see him? Was he ever around when you guys were making Forbidden World? I, I saw him once on. Um, I think it was doing Android, and I was in the men's room, and I'm just taking a leak at the urinal and somebody else comes by and I just turn my head to see if it's somebody I knew and it was Roger and that was my the only time I've ever seen him I didn't shake his hand or anything oh by, by the way I know you I mean you're peeing but yeah, no. that was the only time I've seen him in my life yeah yeah that's a tough one it's hard to do introductions in the in the men's room there um, yeah you know which hand you use the left or the right you know sure um, when I, I saw the interview on the um, Blu-ray for Forbidden World, John Carl Beekler talks about that director Alan Holzman was either wearing tennis shoes or roller skates. And we know Alan was a big roller skates guy. Did you ever see him running around the set on roller skates? You know, I don't. I remember the tennis shoes. I don't remember roller skates. I certainly would. Uh, funny John would mention that because John was the guy who always dressed the same. And that was a a yellow polo shirt, usually shorts and sandals, flip-flops. No matter the weather, the season, mm-hmm. day or night, you know, you're not supposed to wear anything except closed shoes on a movie set because there's a lot of things that can damage your feet. 
Sure. But he would always have his sandals and flip flops on. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't remember Alan Alan's shoes, but I remember John's. Yeah, that's funny because it again it looks like such a messy set with all that yeah. just goo everywhere. You would think, why walk around in, in sandals? But well, he didn't want to dirty up his shoes. You can yeah. clean your feet a lot easier. Well, <laughs> well really, it's uh, I I hate to wear shoes. I love I only wear sandals even in the winter. But when I'm on a movie set, I will wear shoes because there's a lot of heavy things that can fall on your feet, and uh, you want to be protected. Of course, that's just me. Now the uh, you were dealing with the the end effect essentially, and you were dealing with the like the uh, the the smelly and then not smelly cancerous um, tumor tumor. But yeah. then at the end, like you were, were you in the creature for the end effect, uh, the barf scene essentially. Yes, yes, that was shot at the end, as I recall. Um, I spent most of my time working with John and working on set, wrangling the corpses and the doing makeup effects of uh, what was the doctor's name that Lyndon Childs mm-hmm. and uh, doc, Dr. Fox. But Steve Neal was there doing the rubber monster stuff. And uh, I don't, he had a separate area for his lab and he's doing a lot of it himself, though not all of it. But there was a bit of overlap where Steve would be running a little tight and he would just borrow one of us from John's crew and I'd go over and help out with various things. One of what it was the last thing of uh, doing the creature's demise. And, uh, you know, it's a big rubber creature. I mean, you could get inside of it that was, you know, designed that way. And uh, I guess it was Roger Corman's idea that it'd be killed by the cancer tumor from Dr. Fox and they feed it to the monster. Yeah, I believe and it was. John yes. Be- yeah, John Beekler had the idea for it to vomit. And we're like, well, how are you going to do that? You know, well, a couple of idiots are going to climb inside and mix up polyurethane foam. Now, polyurethane foam is a very toxic material. It's basically two-part mixture, A and B, and you mix it up and it foams and expands like shaking a Coke can or something. But you can get it in different densities and it will foam up, you know, a water glass will become, you know, the volume of 10 water glasses or 20, depending on which foam you get. And it will foam up and become soft or hard like a flotation device. And uh, it also gets very hot and gives off cyanide fumes as it foams up. So John's idea, I mean, if, if OSHA had come down, if they had heard about this, they probably <laughs> would have put John in jail for a couple of years. <laughs> so John's idea is to have two people inside mix up A and B in big gallon buckets and as it starts to foam and give off its cyanide fumes and get very hot, quickly dump it out the mouth and you don't have much time from it. You start mixing this shit and it, it starts to kick off really fast. So you basically pour A and B together, stir really fast and you have about 30 seconds before it's going to blast everywhere. So that was John's idea. I'm like, well, who's going to be inside the suit? And he goes, you and Don. And Don <laughs> was Don Oliveira, who played Sam 104. And he was also on our makeup effects crew. Uh-huh. And we were we happened to be the smallest people. So Don was very short. I was about, I guess I'm 5'10". But everybody else was bigger, and they couldn't really fit well inside the monster. So they sent somebody to Target or somewhere, and they got us, you know, protective clothing, which wasn't, you know, PPPE. It was pajamas you know so we got these soft blue and white fuzzy pajamas and uh we had these things called well they were they're full-length gloves that go from your fingertips to your elbow they're clear vinyl 
clear plastic, and they are essentially a, a bovine gynecological glove. This is for inspecting a cow's vagina. <laughs> veterinarians use. These are these are real gloves that the veterinarians yeah. use when they're inspecting sure. cows. So sure. they go to the shoulder. We we call them cow punching gloves. So <laughs> so John Beagle's brilliant, brilliant idea is to get Don and I inside the rubber creature, which was like being inside a like if you can take a tiny closet and cut it in half and put it over your head. It was like dark and claustrophobic <laughs> and you couldn't there's no room. So we were in there in these, you know, fuzzy flannel pajamas and we had our cow punching gloves on. We had respirators and we we're like shoulder to shoulder. We could barely hear, you know, instructions from outside. I was like, okay, <laughs> what? <laughs> Basically, we had some, some cues to, okay, move the monster. Okay, wand it, wand it. So John and I hear vomit. We start mixing up A and B really quick pour it out this mouth stuff starts foaming of course we can't see what's going on we're shaking the creature it was just dangerous stupid insane and you know and it worked for the shot it's absolutely nuts and of course then this polyurethane foam is dried on the concrete floor and it's like epoxy glue it does not come off you took a couple of people you know days to scrape this crap off the floor but you know they got the shot, right? <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to say, is that is that one shot, and then that's it? Like you only get a one shot at that it? Was, oh, that was one shot because once it foamed up, it dried inside the mouth on the outside of the creature, and basically it solidified, so it's hanging off there like this vomit cotton time dangling off. And to clean it up and take it up, it was impossible. So it's basically John told them, you know, there's one shot here, get three cameras or whatever. Make sure everybody has their cues because we've got one one take at this and that's it. And there you go. Wow. And, uh, wow. Unbelievable. <clears throat> the things you do when yeah, you're young only... and you're like, what the heck? You know, it's the movies. Let's give it a shot. Why not? Yeah, I mean, if, if I was on a movie today and somebody started asking me to do that, I'd, I'd, I'd just tell them they're insane and walk away. But <laughs> yeah, you're 20, 24, you're on your first or second movie. You know, you're doing what you've been dreaming of doing for many years. It's really cool. It's fun. And uh, it was crazy. It was like so, so weird and wacky. And every day on the set was fun and exciting and different. And yeah. Did, what can I say? did you have anything to do with the creature that they built? I know you were more on uh, effects, but like they, they built a creature when they, when they step out of the ship for a second. Um, this oh, the, the part uh, that I think the they even Sandy. shot in the parking lot, I think. Yes, they um, did. I remember. I remember shooting that. I, like I said, I I mostly worked with John, but I hopped back to hopped over to Steve Neal's team when he needed a little help. Mm-hmm. There was uh, one, two other things I did involving the creature. One was they needed a shot of. I don't think it was ever used of the the black creature's arm, touching okay. doing something. So we're in, Anthony and I, the guy that brought me onto the job. He and I and at Steve's shop one night steve wasn't around we had to make a rubber arm and there's a big mold of the arm in two pieces and we needed to foam it up again with rubber and polyurethane foam the expanding heating up foam that gives off cyanide fumes i mean when i say it heats up it heats up really hot so we had to put an inner structure inside this arm 
But that would have taken half the night to make something. And Anthony came up with the idea of me putting on a cow punching glove and putting my arm in the mold and he'd pour in the foam. And as it started to heat up, I'd, we'd pull everything apart. So you're young and stupid. And, oh, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and again, because I had a really skinny arm, I was the one that, you know, could do this. So I put on a cow punching glove. He puts my arm inside this mold, two-piece plaster mold, straps it all together. I mean, really straps it all together with these canvas straps and a rubber band, these huge, thick rubber bands. So I'm locked inside this thing, like trapped. And there's a space at the top by my shoulder where he's going to pour in the polyurethane foam. So I get positioned. I'm resting on the floor. <clears throat> okay, pour the foam. He mixes it up, pours it in. A minute, a couple of seconds goes by, and I'm like, Anthony, this is getting warm. It's getting hot. It's getting really fucking hot. Take this fucking thing off me. So he's scrambling to unstrap it and all this. And I'm screaming, yeah, because I can feel this stuff through the plastic cow punching glove, oh, glove burning no. my entire arm. And we just barely get it off in time. Like, what the fuck were we thinking, you know? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. And then they didn't I, use the effect? I don't think so. Were they? I'm sure they filmed it. Maybe it just didn't get edited in. But uh, there was also the there was overlap during June, June Chadwick's scene in the I guess it's the computer room or something when she's typing in the monitor trying to communicate with the creature. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and you see part of the creature sitting on a shelf, and a little slime is dripping down. Then you see its tail kind of hit the right. floor, and it kind of goes goes towards June. And she's there, of course, in her white bathrobe or whatever. And <laughs> as you do. Yeah, as you do in a spaceship when you're a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> even, even a scientist needs some leisure time, some self care. Even you know, on the ship, you I need mean, that self care time. We've all seen the live feed from the Hubble telescope, internet, or live feed from the International Space Station when they're all floating around in their bathrobes. So, yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, excuse me. Scientist June is uh, trying to communicate with the creature, and she's standing there in her robe. And the shot, as you know, is the tail comes closer and closer, and then you cut to June, and you know, the tail shoots out of her shoulder and she, you know, screams, she's dead. Well, John was in charge of doing the actual effect of the, the creature tail shooting out of her shoulder. And I think it was, it was either Bart or Anthony and I were on the floor and one of us is pumping blood and the other is operating the tail. So to do the effect, we're right at June's feet and we look up. And she's not wearing any underwear and we can kind of see everything. And so we're trying to focus on, you know, timing the cues and getting this. And we're going to do it. Got to get it in one shot. Yeah, sure. Whatever. Keep, you know, go ahead and do whatever you need to do. We're fine down here. That's is insane. Every day was insane like that. And uh, <laughs> you guys need anything down there? Now bring us a couple of coffees. You know, we're good. <laughs> we'll hang out here for a while. But, um, you know, it was uh, one of my early effects was. I'm, I'm, I'm a small guy. I wasn't that small, but John kept volunteering me for doing this or that. And I had to play the hand of the dead guy on the table that's kind of half rotted away. Right, right. When, right. when Don, Don Dunlap, of course, in a bathrobe, has to come look at him. And the hand grabs her bathrobe. And so they did a fake, John had made this fake body before I arrived. Uh, 
but for this shot, he goes, well, you're going to be underneath this fake table and you're going to be the hand that grabs her. Okay. You know, <laughs> and I'm all, I'll cue you. And at least I could hear, you know, I sort of, you know, okay, she's getting closer. Get ready to grab, move the fingers, grab, you know, but I was working blind. I, I didn't know what I was grabbing. I just keep grabbing until I felt the cloth of her robe. And then, and then they'd cut. And then we had a rubber hand that came off and stays mm-hmm. attached to her. Yeah, that was one of the earliest first things I did on set. I remember how fun that was. Uh. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> when you started running your own uh, cruise, once you were on later shows, would you also then take the younger guys and make them do the sort of, <laughs> do that sort of stuff? Like, cause that's like no longer, you, you eventually graduate to um, where you don't have to do that stuff anymore. I mean, it depends on what it is. I, I would deliberately pick somebody, you know, and put them in an uncomfortable situation. You'd pick the right person for the job. Sure. Sure. Or at least I would. I mean, I was puppeteering this this bat creature on Phantasm, and Don Coscarelli, the director, insisted it be me puppeteering this little creature. But, you know, after like 20 takes, I'm getting tired. And, and then I brought somebody else over to take over, and I went over to Don and said, I really need to see what you see. I can't see what I'm doing when I'm under there. You know, we didn't have remote cameras or video right, feed or anything. Right. No, to answer your question, I'd, I'd pick the right person for the job, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't volunteer them. I'd ask them, you know, yeah. sure. and I would never have somebody do something dangerous like this vo- vomiting polyurethane foam. That was so lethal. You know, of course, today you, you do CGI or mm-hmm. use oatmeal. I mean, that that's what also perplexed me. I used to make fake vomit when I was a kid as a prank at school. And I used like oatmeal and throw in some food coloring and mushroom soup. And then you'd throw it in the hallway to have everybody freak out. I mean, it, it was non-toxic. It was food, and it it looked real. I don't know why John didn't use something like that for this creature. You could have done it with oatmeal and soup, and you know, done a couple of takes, and it wouldn't have killed everybody. It wouldn't have stuck to the floor, and right. I don't know. Who knows? It it does I look digress. like a great effect. I will give it that. It does look pretty great. <laughs> well, I I look back and go, geez, what if something had gone wrong? It oh, for been, sure. You know, Don and I in the hospital. I'm sure but, hey, Corman would have covered gone. all the bills. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Depends. Depends well, on the hospital, I suppose. Yeah. Roll the um, dice there, maybe. So did you yeah. <laughs> what did they did they shoot to Android and uh and Forbidden World kind of back to back, or were they happening sort of at the same time? No, they were pretty much back to back. I'd I'd worked for maybe a month on Forbidden World, as I said, in the lab on the set. And there was a bit of a time lull. I don't know how much. It wasn't much, maybe a week or two. And then Android started, and John called me back. And uh, But during Android, I do remember they were shooting Love Letters and Sorcerer, Sorceress at the same time. So John was mm-hmm. prepping Android, Sorceress, and Love Letters. Um, Anthony was working on the Love Letters, Jamie Lee Curtis, some effect involving her ankles. We had her feet cast there. I remember that. Huh. And I was mostly working on Android. And, and I think they'd shot, yeah, they must have shot some of it or prepped some of it because when I showed up to do Android, John had already, no, 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 I'm just, I'm thinking back here, my memory. Sorry, it's been so long. No, I was there in the beginning ago. because uh, John and I went to a hotel to cast Klaus Kinski's head. I remember mm-hmm, that was mm-hmm. the first thing. So must have been after Forbidden World before shooting Android. John called me and said, hey, we're doing this other film, Android. Can you meet me? We'll, uh, we're going to cast Klaus Kinski's head at 
the Chateau Marmont. And I'm like, isn't that where John Belushi died last week? You know? <laughs> yeah, that place. So we pack our plaster and all our stuff and we go to Klaus's room and Aaron was there, uh, Aaron Lipstadt, because you know, he's the director and he was talking to Klaus, explaining what we had to do. And Klaus is going, I don't want to do it in the room, we do it outside. And outside <laughs> is the balcony, which is outside. The balcony is, you know, maybe 10 feet wide, but it's only about three feet deep, mm-hmm. you know, if that. I mean, it's not meant for sitting out and having your coffee. So you stand there for a minute and look out at LA and then you go back inside. It's very small. So Aaron and Klaus are just chatting away and Klaus is always very animated. And finally we get him to come out to the balcony and we actually get him to you know, quiet down for a second, sit in the chair. And I have to put a ball cap on him. And John is John and I are both doing this together. We have to put a cover his hair with a ball cap so we can make it mold of his head. Mm-hmm. And he's just talking to Aaron. He's just nonstop gesticulating, very animated. We can look at Aaron and Aaron says, Klaus, I think you need to, you know, you need to, if you could sit still, please, and they'll put this cap on you and we'll be done. So I'm trying to put the cap on him. And, and when you do that, you have to cut around the ears and glue it around the ears. And you have to be very careful. You want the actor to be very still while you're doing that. Well, Klaus is just talking, talking, very animated, moving around. And just as my scissors about to close, his earlobe comes into the scissors and I just pulled back. It happened so fast, but I came so close to cutting his earlobe off. And of course, he never knew it. But John looked at me and his eyes got wide. And I looked at him and I go, oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. I don't know how we got through it. But I think we ended up doing the front of his face because he wasn't going to sit still for a full head, which is very claustrophobic to some people. But we got him to, you know, not move and talk for 15 minutes, which was a miracle in itself. And <laughs> <laughs> so that, that and was then, the, is that the head that they use when they pull it off of his body in the movie? Is that the head that, that you well, asked for? There's more to the story. Okay. Oh, sorry. So after, after, after we cast, no, in fact, it's going to answer your question. After we cast <laughs> his head, John had, you know, he was planning to make the head himself. And a week goes by and he calls me again. Well, we need to need to have it come down and do some more work. And we're doing Klaus Kinski heads and did this and that. And I go down and have a lumber. And John has got a Klaus Kinski head, the, the animatronic one. You've probably seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he did a special TV special. There's cables hanging out of it. And mm-hmm. the eyeballs are kind of looking askew in different directions. And it doesn't quite look like Klaus. And Klaus saw this. And apparently he was just fucking royally pissed, you know, threatening to quit if they <laughs> even shot that. Wow. So that's when I, I got called in to make another head. But John wanted me to just do it for the head being pulled off where uh, Don Opper, I think. Yeah. The one who pulls yep. the head off. Yep. Yeah. yep. Correct. Yeah. So John brought me in. They're trying to keep Klaus from seeing the head. So he doesn't ever go to the makeup lab. They're trying to keep it hidden. I don't know if they ever ended up shooting the mechanical head John made. They called me in, and for some reason, I think uh, Aaron had asked John to come up with drawings showing what the effect of the head pull-off would be. And John turned to me and said, you know, go home tonight, we'll pay you, sketch out what it's going to look like with the head being pulled off. And I went home and I did a panel drawing of about six storyboard panels of an arm pulling off Klaus Kinski's head and a little um, robotic 
parks and things underneath. And I came back and showed that to Aaron and John. And uh, yeah, that's what we want. That's what we're going to shoot. And my drawing included the whole head, you know, to the top mm-hmm. of the head. So that's what Aaron was expecting and wanting. So then I spend the next, uh, I don't know how long, week, two weeks making a new Klaus head. And I, John was busy on set with, uh, I think it was Love Letters or just doing other effects for Android. And he kind of let me run with the ball. And I did a whole entirely new re-sculpt of the Klaus head from the original mold. I made a clay replica of Klaus. I cleaned it up and I made it look more like Klaus. And I opened the eyes. And, you know, not to, you know, anything bad about John, but my, my sculpture was better. It was more lifelike. It looked more like Klaus. And John was no dummy. He saw that too. And he kept resisting and fighting me on it saying, don't spend so much time on the head. We're not going to see it. I said, well, Aaron said he wants to see the head. No, no, we're not going to see that. So much as I love John, I've been, I was friends with him for decades. You know, I'm, I'm kind of resisting him. He's resisting me. And when he'd leave, I kind of do what I want. Okay, I'm going to make it look better. I'm going to more work on the eyes. <laughs> and he was like, okay, we got to mold it. Mold it. It's not done yet. You got to mold it. Okay. So we make a mold of it, Anthony and I. And it's a whole big head and shoulders thing of Klaus. And it, it was a bit of work, and it, it does look better. And then we had to make the, the foam rubber for it. This is all for the head being pulled off shot. Right. Yeah. And because it was a robot piece, uh, when the foam rubber tears, the foam rubber is opaque white. You don't want to see that underneath. So John said, make the rubber black. Well, anytime you make foam rubber and you put tinting into it, it can mess it up. And if you put black and you have to have a lot of black to make it look even dark gray, it's going to mess up the chemical formula a lot. So it's going to be tricky, but okay, John, we'll do that. And so Anthony, I, I spent night after night trying to get one good foam head out of this whole thing. And back then the foam rubber we used was created by a, a guy who passed away, passed the formula on to the guy who worked on Wizard of Oz, who sold it for a lot of money and the stuff never worked. It was like so unreliable. Heat affected it, humidity, how long you mixed it. I mean, half the time you just look at it wrong and it's not set, which means <laughs> it wouldn't work. And a cleanup on it was a bitch. It took hours and if you kind of got it halfway right and you filled the molds partway and it screwed up you'd have to stop what you're doing clean up reset hours and hours of wasted time and wow. frustration and as i said it's sensitive to moisture so we're doing this in the old hammond lumber makeup effects lab which is basically you know this dilapidated structure that when it rained it leaked so mm-hmm. we're in this room mixing very sensitive foam rubber chemicals that are sensitive to moisture when it's raining inside the fucking room. So that was a disaster. It took that. It took so long. And then finally we got a good one. It took days and days and nights. We're in there all night. Finally, we got a good, almost black, dark gray Klaus head. Yay. Well, we can shoot it now. And then we paint it up and I put in glass eyeballs and, and make a wig for it in like half an hour. And Aaron came in oh, this looks great. Well, we can use this. And John's like, no, 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 this is just for the head tearing, the neck tearing. We're not going to see the head. <laughs> so back to that again. Only now he's trying to convince Aaron, the director, not to show the face. And Aaron liked the face. Uh-huh. So I get I get to put on Don Offer's 
uniform. Because, of course, I don't know, John picked me again. I'm the actual arm that pulls Klaus's head off. Oh, and wow. We, we go, yeah, it's my arm pulling the head off. Cool. But we go to set, and and I got the John, Don Opper space suit on his little pajamas or whatever they are. And we're <laughs> yeah. setting up the shot, and John has got, he said, okay, put your hand over Klaus's face. Because why, you know? Aaron wants to see the face. So I'm on set, and we're kind of, not angrily, but we're like going back and forth. And Aaron's like, no, move your hand off. John, put your hand back. Because yeah, John didn't want to, anybody to see that the head I did was better than the one he did. And it, it annoyed him. So he kept telling any excuse he had to cover that face up. He And it was nuts. It's finally we shot a couple times, and that was it. And, uh mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I mean, yeah, you, you have a picture of it on your uh, on your Instagram and it looks great. At least the, the gray cast of his of his head. It looks awesome. Oh, well, it looks it was, you know, I mean, it looks like best. Klaus Kinski. So, you know, it looks yeah, good. Well, so. Considering I was under the gun and rushed to finish and was never finished. Uh, you know, thank you. Were you there when uh, they shot Klaus? Uh, as the headless where he's being held up by Don Opper and he's just sort of, I think he's just behind like black duvetine, I think. And, and it is just the head talking. I, I think I was there for some of that. Um, I'm sure I was. My focus was on the, the redo of the new Klaus head. Right. I do remember one thing about Klaus. I remember watching him act with the other actors and, uh, they would do take after take because he would deliberately blow his line or something till he would exhaust the other actors and they got burned out. And then he'd come in and he'd do his stuff perfectly. I don't know if it was a mind game <laughs> or what, but he did that a lot. I remember that. <clears throat> yeah, I gotta write the... that down. I gotta try that at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you should. Works works excellent. Tried and true script. <laughs> yeah, the the director's commentary from Aaron Lipstadt on on Android mentions just a little bit of Klaus Kinski uh, doing some mind games on people. Um, of course, this was no Fitzcarraldo, but I mean, it was. I'm sure he he couldn't quite help himself. Yeah, uh, no, I I actually like to see that behind the scenes, uh, especially his commentary. Aaron's would be interesting. Yeah. It, it's it's unfortunately you know android is kind of out of print and i i had to kind of search high and low to find the dvd but you can it's out there you can find it um but you you kind of have to hunt for it on ebay because it's kind of a sadly it's an out of print movie um as much as it was released by new world pictures eventually i believe aaron and i think um barry opper who was the producer they bought back the rights, so they i think eventually owned it and where it is now i don't know Hmm. Well, I've got uh, I got invited to an Android, must have been 30th or 35th anniversary party uh, on an email thread. So I've got Barry and Don's email. Um, I'll ask them if they know where to get it. They they know yeah. us if they own the right. Yeah, yeah I'll see what I can find out for you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'd love to know about that. Yeah, we, um, we, was we there... talked we talked about that movie, and for us, it was a really it was a hidden gem. We no, it was a movie that totally that we, we didn't have a lot of background on it uh when we when we reviewed it and watched it and we all thought it was fantastic so um would love to see it get like a really proper treatment 
Yeah, it'd be about time. Then they can then call me and ask me, hey, we're going to do another Blu ray. Why another one? I can't <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Was was there a difference to you uh, going from uh, Forbidden World to Android? Was, it, was, was there anything that stood out to you as being different in terms of those two productions? No, there's a, a certain sameness. And I mean, they were reusing, you know, some portions of the Forbidden World set for Android, as I recall, too. Yeah, I think they just like um, and, repainted it. Yeah, but the Forbidden World set, part of that, not all of it, but part of it was used for, uh, was it Galaxy of Terror? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. there's like a, several in a row that uh, Roger did, Galaxy of Terror. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's all, did, you know. He did Galaxy first and then asked Alan, he gave Alan the Galaxy of Terror set that for like a weekend to shoot that opening scene of right, world right. with uh, Don Oliveira as the, as the, in the robot suit and Jesse Vent. And uh, they shot sort of that, <laughs> that opening scene that's in the, like uh, the, I think the cockpit uh, set for galaxy of terrors where they shoot that first part. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes total sense. I mean, when you went to the set, uh, they had like grading on the, or the Android set. And that was all like milk cartons. And when you walk down the space station corridor on Forbidden World, they're all McDonald's, <laughs> yep. you know, styrofoam mm-hmm. takeout trays, mm-hmm. spray painted, very cheap. I mean, effective. I, I just, you just reminded me of another story about uh, uh, the whole era is uh, Don Oliveira, who played Sam 104. He had made that robot suit himself. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he it was really, really nice job. And he was a makeup effects guy. Um, and he got hired to do be John's assistant as well as playing the character of Sam 104. So in his portfolio, Don had, you know, the picture of Sam 104. And it, it took him months and months and months to make that robot suit. And it was beautiful. Hmm. So one thing we did at New World is whenever John interviewed a new makeup effects hopeful, he didn't just interview him himself. He had the person come in and we all sat around and looked at his portfolio as like a group thing, not to, not to pressure this person, but just, oh, here are the guys, we're all going to look at your book. Is that okay? Sure. So people would come in and show their portfolios. And, and this one guy came in, I have no idea who it was, but we're all sitting there, John, Anthony, Don, and I, and we're paging through and this guy's opening up his work and showing pictures and flipping the page. He flips a page, this strange guy, and there's a picture of Sam 104. This guy was pushing his uh, Don's work, the robot suit, off wow. of his own, which is a big, that's the biggest no in the world. You know? Right. Mm. And I remember he flips the page, Don taps the page and goes, I did that. And he looked up at the guy. The guy picked up his portfolio, turned around and walked out, and nobody's ever heard from him since. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, he's wow. trying to pass off somebody else's work as his own. Yeah. to the person who did it without right. it. what an idiot yeah it's a bold move that is bold, bold that is bold <laughs> yeah imagine no uh, but to answer your question there was a you know when you worked on forbidden world or galaxy of terror into android a lot of the same people were there you know many people would remain and work between shows depending on what their job was or like John, he was John was employed full time by Roger. Whatever movies came in, John would do. And if he wasn't working on set, he was prepping the next one. But a lot of the same people were there: the electricians, the art department people, 
Mm. I guess uh, um, Bill Paxton was there in Galaxy of Terror, but he must have moved on because I never met him. I don't think he okay. worked on Forbidden World. But yeah, I don't think he did either. Down there. You know, it was a great time. It was a great, great era. A lot of fun. Now, you worked on a couple of other New World movies as well. And I'm not sure if you even knew these were New World movies, but you actually did the makeup. You were the lead makeup guy on Raw Courage. Oh, that was re- probably just released by New World, I guess. That was it was released by I think this is after Roger sold the company, so uh-huh. it was released by them. But I think they probably I, I know Ronnie Cox and his wife sort of uh, I think they are the ones that produced it and funded it, so they must have then sold it yes. to New World. That was a uh, Sandy Howard production when I got involved. Um, I had worked with Joel's partner to be Michael Murphy. I think by this time, Joel and Michael were kind of partnering up and they were working for Sandy Howard and they started calling me to do Sandy Howard movies. And this was one they called me for in July or summer of 83. And they needed somebody to head up the makeup and which was makeup and makeup effects. In other words, doing everything from the makeup on Lois Childs to the runners in the desert getting beaten and killed. Mm-hmm. And they only had enough money for one person. So I'm thinking, you know, okay, and read the script and going, this is really a two-person job. There's a lot of work. There's three runners going through the desert, getting sunburned and beaten and sweaty. You know, I'm thinking, I can't handle this myself. But my protests went on deaf ears. They fell on deaf ears, and I shipped out to New Mexico, Las Cruces. And Ronnie had written it. And he was acting in it, and he was also producing it. He and his wife wrote it, so he had a right. big stake in it. And I'm prepping a, uh, a schedule. Um, what, was, what would I call this? Uh, we're shooting out of schedule, like they do with most movies. But this one was different because we were shooting of the runners running through the desert, so we could kind of gauge where the locations were. So that part was getting to be mostly in sequence, but it was three runners. I can't do three actors in the morning full body makeups from their bruised up shins and you know road rash to cuts bruises and matching it on three actors in the morning and be ready to shoot i just can't do that and we hadn't started shooting by this point but i you know made a protest to the director not a protest but a request to the director that i need somebody else i talked to the production manager well we can't afford that and so i put together this list and it was a breakdown of how long it was going to take every day. The further we went into the running sequences, and you know, in the beginning it was Mark doing three actors. Okay, one hour. Mark by the you know, week two, Mark doing three actors, two hours. Mark doing three actors, week three point five, three hours. And it was all. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It was based upon the actual time I would need as one person mm-hmm. to make the three principal actors ready in the morning. And I went to Ronnie's room. I ignored the director. I ignored the producer. I went to Ronnie's room and knocked on the door and said, can I speak to you? I need to show you this. Now keep in mind, again, Ronnie had a big stake. This was his first movie that he'd written. He's producing himself. And I said, I need more help. And here's why. And he took a look at it. I went back to my room. He called and he said, okay, we're going to get you a new person. Who do you want? And when do you need him here? <laughs> I was like, I said, his name's Bart Mixon. He's in Texas, and I need him here in two days, you know. And that was done. Wow. So it went really well. Ronnie was great. He's a 
we're still friends. We were still in touch today and he's a, he's a terrific guy. And, uh, yeah, it was Bart and I taking care of everybody in the film every day, plus the, you know, makeup effects here and there, what, you know, whatever gag happened. <clears throat> yeah, it was a blast. And, uh, but it yeah, had to be difficult experience. with the, with the weather though. Right. Cause it was like a hundred degrees in Arizona to shoot that. Wasn't it? That was, it was all in New Mexico, New Mexico, Las Cruces out in, oh, I see. uh, it was July. So yeah, it was pretty hot. Um, yeah, it was raging hot at times. I remember wearing, uh, you cover yourself completely when we shot in white sands, New Mexico. I mean, that's, it's like shooting in snow, except it's 120 degrees. And I had covered myself up entirely, sunglasses, face shield, hat, long sleeve shirt. The only part I neglected to cover was under my jawline, my neck. And, and I had a, a bandana on, but it didn't cover my neck. And what happened was the sun reflected off the white sand and hit my neck. And I got the worst, most painful sunburn mm-hmm. ever. Yeah, it was, it was really, really hot. Um, but that was that worked. It was okay because the actors are supposed to be sweaty, but you didn't want them to sweat off the makeup. Right. And right. that's you know, what I that's what I was thinking of because, like, to to not only get them done up in the morning, but then to keep them made up throughout the day when it's that hot, that must have well, been a this, lot too. Well, usually up until this time, whenever you made somebody up it was, with any sort of effect, we use a stuff called rubber mask grease paint, which is a greasy, oily castor oil based makeup. And of course, when you sweat, it sweats it off. But by 83, I'd, I'd heard about Dick Smith's Pax paint, which he invented for Footsie and The Hunger, which is essentially a paint, a really sticky paint that dried. And it was really tenacious. This stuff was hard to remove. So Bart and I used that for a lot of our effects. Like for sunburn, we'd use the Pax mixture, thin it down, and we'd put it on. It would stay all day, no matter if it was 115 degrees out. And we used it also mixed up various glues with breadcrumbs and stuff to make road rash. And we'd put it on and it would stay there all day long. Mm. So we solved the ha- half the problem by using Dick Smith's materials or using very sticky glues mixed with colors and stuff like that. But the funny thing is Ronnie had to, uh, he had to be sweating all the time. And he, you know, he's, he's not a character actor, not a character, he's a character actor. He's not a method actor. Mm. So he could switch it on and off, but because of the physicality of the role, sometimes before a shot, during the running sequences, he'd want to, you know, last thing before camera rolled, he'd like run off a quarter mile and come back. So he'd get his, be come out of breath and be a little sweaty. And I'm like, Ronnie, I can spray you down. I can make you sweaty. <laughs> no, no, no. I need, to, I need to run off. I need to run. I'll be back, you know, and you run off and he's, <laughs> <laughs> the camera crew's waiting. Where'd he go? And he's way over the fuck over that mountain. When's he coming back? I don't know. Just stay ready. And he'd come back and he'd be all sweaty and he'd be out of breath. Okay, let's roll. <laughs> yeah. He's only method about running. Yeah, he's only a method runner actor, but everything else he can switch it on and off like Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> there was so. I remember I'm, I'm still in touch here and there with Art Hindle, the runner who gets killed. Uh, and Art was out there. He burned his little boy out for a while. His little boy, I forget his name. He was about, uh, I don't know, 10 or 11. And, you know, he's a little boy on a movie set. And sometimes it's a little boring. So Bart and I would bring him in and we'd, we'd amuse him with, you know, show him what we're doing or tell stories or whatever. And, and we're out in the desert one day. 
and we had a craft service table with like a Capri Sun drinks and the little water cooler. And I used to amuse Art Sun because I'd be pretending to, I'd be behind a water cooler and I'd put a cup down and I'd kind of bend like I'm about to take a pee and I'd squirt the water into the cup. And of course he'd look over and he'd hear this. <laughs> he thought that was the funniest thing. And, and it, I was, it was so just, you know, I, I used to be a 10 year old kid. I know it amuses 10 year old boys. So he thought it was funny as hell, but, uh, we, we did a similar trick. Bart and I were both doing this uh, uh, against the actor Tim Mayer, the young runner. Now, he had a great sense of humor. We're always teasing him and pulling pranks and jokes. And uh, and we had blood. Bart and I were reading some blood tubing for a gag when an actor gets impaled. And we're testing out the tubes with water and everything. And I don't know how it happened, but somebody left plastic doll in our makeup trailer. And we took one of the fingers from this doll or something. I forget what it was. It looked like a little tiny little penis. And we cut the finger off and cut a <laughs> hole in it. And we hooked up our blood tubing to it. And instead of testing the tubing with water, we put some yellow food coloring in it. So, you know, it looked like pee. And then we hooked it up. I put it in my pants. And Bart goes out. And he finds Tim, the actor, and goes, Mark needs to see you about something. He says, it's really important. You better go to the trailer right away. Tim's like, what? What? Did I do something? I don't know. You just just go to the trailer, knock on the door. And I'm standing behind the door. And it knocks, and Tim opens, and he's standing below me. And I've got the little plastic doll thing that looks like a penis, and I hit the syringe. So essentially, it looks like I'm pissing all over him. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. <laughs> he fell over screaming, oh, Zayuj, what the fuck are you doing? And then, you know, we're Bar and I are just cutting up laughing, you know. <laughs> That's the sort of crazy stuff we do in between takes. Uh, quite, you know, when, when all else fails, you know, you, you always go back to bathroom humor. You know? <laughs> <laughs> when all else fails, you create a fake penis. <laughs> that's right you know depraved minds think, think that way that's right the great <laughs> the greatest minds the another sandy howard production that you did that was also a new world movie is the boys next door i knew you were going to say that one yeah uh that now, now just to go back on sandy howard did you first work with him on on deadly force was that where you first met sandy howard uh, let's see no actually it was uh I think it was raw courage also known as courage and then that was summer of 83 deadly force i was working on that in october 83 so that was the next one okay yeah, no. and then 84 was boys next door boys next door yeah i remember i remember boys next door i think at the time i knew it was going to be a new world pictures release and uh, it was also with joel swasson who also worked on that one as well yeah. joel swasson and michael murphy were both uh, producing that so that's how they got called i got called my after meeting joel on 12 at night i met michael i guess through joel i don't remember no no i met michael on my first gig in violet in 1980 so obviously by this time 82 83 we all knew each other and michael and joel had met and they had become partners and sandy howard took them under his wing and taught him the ropes and let them sort of write and produce and uh, one of the early shows was Boys Next Door. What did you do on that one? What were you responsible for? I did all the, the beating murder victims of Charlie Sheen and Max Caulfield. So mm -hmm. they're, 
You've seen the movie, right? Of course, yeah. Oh, so yeah, I did all the all the carnage they create. <laughs> yeah. And I shouldn't mind. But it begins <laughs> my main job, well, the most intricate one was the guy at the gas station, Kirk Christian, who gets beaten up with the uh the gas pump nozzle. Yeah, yeah. And I went in to meet with Penelope Spheres and I showed her what I wanted to do, which is a three stage makeup. One at the gas station being all cuts and bleeding. Uh, I don't know why I had a second stage. The final stage was him in the hospital bed, all stitched and bruised up. And uh, that was one of them. I had to do all dancer, the the gay guy that they pick up and take back to his place and beat him there. Yeah. What else was there? Um, I remember those two very well because things get lost when you're in the madness of shooting. Like uh, I'm up the gas station on Beverly Boulevard, but shooting in the daytime it's taking too long. They're wondering when they're going to get to the Charlie. She knows who beats him up, Max Caulfield or Charlie, whoever beats him up with the gas pump. It's uh, Max the Caulfield. Whole, yeah, it was Max. Max was mm-hmm. it, and he's being the guy. So I can see the sun getting towards the horizon. I go to Joel and say, Joel, you know, it's, it's the prosthetics I need to put on this guy are going to take an hour or whatever. Yeah, we'll get to it. Don't worry. And then the sun is getting lower and lower and, and then they're getting into the stunts and they had a stunt coordinator who just it became all about the stunts and you know everything else could be pushed to the wayside they're rehearsing the stunts well that's well and good but don't neglect the other departments long story short they had no time to put on the makeup they didn't they, they got, okay we got 30 minutes left of sunlight okay mark we need you to put on the prosthetics how long is it going to take an hour forget it just put some blood on him okay and that's how that went <laughs> I do, I do remember wow. this weird man. I had this memory of uh, while they're rehearsing this stunt with Max and Kurt, I remember having a chat with Charlie Sheen at a gas pump, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but just you know, everything under the sun, I guess. But uh, I had a nice talk with Charlie. I never got to do my effect. And uh, for the time doing it in the hospital, um, that was a much more intricate thing. And I had time to prepare that and sculpt it and everything. And I did a lot of research and uh, research and I wanted to avoid making fake eyebrows for the guy because he's covered in rubber prosthetics for bruising and swelling. It, but you know, it concealed his real eyebrows and that meant I either I had to not include them or include them. And I was hoping that when a person gets their, face severely beaten up like that, that they shave the eyebrows. I'm thinking medically, this is what they probably do, but I want to be accurate. So I call a doctor. When somebody has extensive facial injuries, do you shave the eyebrows? No, we have to keep them on because that's how we put the face back together for plastic surgery. Oh. They're guide marks. Wow. Wow. I would have never thought uh, of that. That means, yeah, that when a face is severely damaged like that, they keep the eyebrows on because when they put it back together, that's what guides them to where they're correctly placing things. So that meant for Mark, who had no experience doing eyebrows, and they're really tricky, oh, fuck, I have to make eyebrows. So in addition to this bruised-up prosthetic, I had to pre-paint it and pre-stitch it. I had to sew all the stitches by hand. That took hours. And then I had to make eyebrows. That took even more hours. And it never quite looked right. I had time to prepare and time to put it on. But the coloring, they had some weird light coming in the hospital bed from somewhere and an ambient room light. It totally messed up the coloration I'd done. It just looked weird and 
I remember being very bummed out that day. And of course, with Paul Dancer, the guy that they beat on the chair and uh, finally shoot him in the chest, uh, I had made a fake tongue and fake dentures for Paul, which were really effective, very quick to put in. No prep time. You just stick the tongue on with a little peanut butter as an adhesive, and this would be got a big gash down the middle, split in two, and then the dentures was a top denture with a tooth gone. And they were they looked really nasty. And after Charlie and Max beat the guy's head on the back of the chair, it was my job to run it at that point and just pop these things in. But again, it became a case of stop the world. We have to rehearse the stunt 50 times. It was fucking ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So it was such a rush by that time. And, and you know, they're into hour 15. Everybody's rushing. We got to finish. We got to get the shot. We get... I'm like, I need to run in there for like three minutes and put these things in his mouth. No, we don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. We got to shoot. I mean, the logic is, there's no mm. logic there to that. You're, you're rushing around for nothing. This would have improved the, the look of the film, the effectiveness of the scene, but you know, you're, you're fighting egos at that point. It becomes mm. uh, kind of a no-win situation unless you want to scream and be an asshole, which I wasn't about to do. Right. I should have. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it it, it uh, made me think, though, that is that when you get hired on, do you have to, like, then draw up the different effects you want and present them to the director? And that's how you kind of get approval to start working on stuff? Well, you want to approve whatever you're planning to do with the director. It it depends on the director, what they want to see. Do they want to see drawings, a sculpture? Or do they just want to sit down and talk and hear from you what you want to do and tell you what they want to do? It depends. Every every show is different. Every scene. Like I remember doing a film uh, to love. It was called Love is a Gun years later. And I went to meet with the director to see what he wanted. And he happened to be a big fan of Evil Dead 2 and all my work. He, I didn't manage to show him anything. He just said, here's the script. I trust you. Go for it. With Penelope, I, I kind of wanted to do this really cool bruised up swollen makeup. Because I'd seen Dick Smith do a neat one in Dogs of War, and I, oh, I want to do that. So I think that's why I kind of I went in for my first meeting with her with a, a life cast, all painted up and all swollen with an eyeball and black and blue, and, and it was all ready to go for her to see. And when we came to talking about that scene, I pulled it out and said, "Well, what do you think of this?" And I was selling myself, you know, because it looked really cool. And she, oh yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, let's do that. So that was basically a case of Mark wanted to do this effect, and psychologically he brought in the prop to convince the director that, yeah, she wants to do that too. And that's how that works. But, uh, you know, in the case of Android, they had me do the sketch because the first head wasn't working out too well. And Aaron was kind of feeling like, ooh, how's this this gag going to work with the head tearing off? So he and John both asked me to draw the, draw up the sequence. And uh, that's how that works. They're different every time. Sure. Does it, if you can't draw, does that mean you can't be a makeup artist? <laughs> I'm asking for a no. friend. <laughs> asking for a friend. No, I. No, I mean these days a lot of people hire people to draw, mm. um, or they don't have time. But like Rick Baker, he's a great artist. He can draw. He can paint. He can do anything artistic. Um, Rob Botine is also a really great artist. He's more of a sculptor, but he can sketch. You know, like like nobody's business. But on. Um, for example, Legend, he was he was designing, he was doing all sorts of things. And he had a guy named Miles Tevis do a lot of the illustrations, but there was Rob's concepts. Now, to answer your question, you don't need to be 
a sketch artist, uh, it certainly helps. I don't know why you'd be getting into makeup artistry without being able to sketch. You need to know color theory, all that. Um, mm. No, I've been never been much of a sketch artist. Uh, I can draw. It takes me a while. I don't enjoy it. I enjoy sculpting. So okay. most people can do one or the other or both. Um, speaking of like getting the context you met, like uh, Rachel Talalay is a- an actor in the end scene of Android. And later oh, you worked right. with her again in Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Um, and Chuck I Russell her in had... a lot of movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I was just wondering if, like, th- that was also, I mean, I know you worked on part two as well and had some incredible effects in Nightmare Part Two. Um, but I just wondered if that connection also helped getting into three. And Chuck Russell would had also directed a movie for New World Pictures as well. So um, I don't know if you ran into him at all during your time working on New World Pictures movies. No, the first and only time I met Chuck was on Nightmare 3, but I had... Uh... I was working on Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one at Dave Miller's garage. I was prepping all the Freddy pieces, and Dave was on set, sitting around with Robert England while I didn't film. And I remember at the time Dave told me that Rachel really Rachel's UPM on Nightmare on Elm Street, and I hadn't met her on Android. I hadn't met her at all, but Dave mentioned her because uh, she helped him with his deal to get paid out earlier, so he could buy his house. And mm. you know, that's the type of that's the type of person Rachel was and is a very gracious, smart person, wonderful, wonderful lady. So I had heard of Rachel on Elm Street 1, the, the original, and I met her after Michael and Joel hired me on Elm Street 2. She was, I think, UPM or a line producer on that, UPM. But by the time they did Nightmare 3, Michael and Joel had moved on and Rachel was now producing. So she called mm-hmm. me for 3. In fact, she called me for Nightmare 4 as well. And I actually had a meeting for Nightmare Three or Four at Rachel at Rachel's house with her in Santa Monica, and I thought, you know, I like working with her so much. This is becoming an annual thing. This is great, you know. But on Nightmare Four, it would just became a, a weird thing because I had met with Rennie Harlan, and and I remember walking out of the meeting thinking, I don't have this job. He didn't like me. I don't know why. Rennie Harlan just didn't like me. We didn't click. I don't know what it was. Chemistry. But I could have done the job, sure, but he just didn't click with me. It was weird. And I called Rachel and said, yeah, I don't need to do a budget for you because he's not going to want me. And I was right. But, huh. yeah, it's weird how that happened. Um, another movie, that a New World movie that you didn't work on was Heather's. Oh, God. <laughs> I, was, I was doing Deep Star Six Yeah. John Cunningham. And Phantasm Two with John Coscarelli. No, Sean Cunningham is a very secure individual. He was entrusting me with hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. It was like, Mark, we know you can do this. Go for it. Come to set when you're ready. We'll shoot. Piece of cake. With Don, it was any time there was something remotely resembling a makeup effect. He was so insecure. Got to have you on set for this. Don, it's just slipping a rubber mask on an extra in the background. Well, I, I need you here. I really need you here. Oh, God. So so basically, I was trying to... It's hard enough to do two films at once, two effects-heavy films. Now I'm doing well with an insecure director who needs me all the time. And Denise Denovi calls me for Heathers for this shooting off the finger. And I turned her down, and she calls back a week later. Oh, 
Mark, we'd really like you to do this. And I turned her down again. I said, I'm really sorry, but I'm dealing with this very insecure director. I can't escape. I don't know when I'm going to sleep tonight because I'm dealing with this bullshit. <laughs> so I turned her down a second time. The funny thing is I've been writing screenplays the last few years, and I wrote to Denise Denobi, and I hadn't had any contact with her you know, in 35 years. I said, do you remember me and the guy that turned you down twice for Heather's? Yeah, of course I remember you. <laughs> And at least I got my screenplay read at her company, uh, so something good came of it. But, That's uh, good. Yeah. So you had know, you, you, you had you to work with her before? No, I've still never met her. We've emailed, but uh, okay. no. I Heather, I turned, I missed out working on the thing, and I missed out working on Heather's. And you know, you look back, you you don't know how what film is going to turn into a classic or not, and. Mm-hmm. But do I kick myself over the thing and Heather's? Yeah, you know, once in a while. <laughs> Your resume is filled with some absolute classics, yeah. uh, particularly in the horror genre. I mean, and and having to turn down Heather's because you're working on Phantasm Two and Deep Star Six. I mean, well. I can kind of, I, I, I get it. I mean, you can kind of understand. I just. Um, if I could go back in the time machine, I would have done Heather's. I would have, I would have figured it away and just, you know, dealt with it. Because by the time they, Heather, uh, Denise called me to do Heather's, we were actually filming on, on uh, Phantasm Two. I remember the last time I turned her down, I was actually on set. I went to the production office to call her. But when we were prepping Phantasm and Deep Star Six, I actually escaped to Italy for 10 days. And nobody knew I was gone, no, director-wise, <laughs> you know. So Sean Cunningham, we're, we're just in prep phase. So there's no reason to tell Sean Cunningham I'm going to England. There's no reason to tell Don. But I knew Don would be calling my shop, wondering where I am. And I got to mm-hmm. talk to Mark. And I was originally supposed to go to Italy for two or three days on this convention. And... I asked my brother if he could, you know, hold the fort and watch my shop while I'm gone. And he worked for me at the time. And, you know, of course, you can trust your brother. I ended up meeting the girl that was, you know, my guide for the convention. She and I ended up you know, kind of falling in love and having a fling. So I'm there for 10 days. I'm calling my, my brother's calling me, you know, we're so often, Mark, you really should get back here. You know, Don keeps calling and wants to talk to you and I can't keep telling him you're in the bathroom or your hands are in plaster and he's not going to leave that for much long. So I'm off in England, in Italy, having the time of my life with this girl and, you know, I could stay there. I'm, I don't know, maybe I'll never go back. This is great. Uh, but then things started to get weird at my shop with this guy who was supposed to be my business partner and Don kept calling. I thought, oh, shit, I better get back. But the whole point is Don never knew I was gone. You know, I mean, but during shooting, you know, God, I wish they'd call me for Heather's while we're in prep of Phantasm. It would have been a no-brainer. Sure, do your movie. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a small gag, but even committing to creating it and then what do they need me on set, it was just, it was too much. And it was too right. much pressure. And, you know, they're shooting Deep Star 6 by that time in Marine Del Rey. Uh, Phantasm 2 was shooting in Chatsworth. And my shop is in South Pasadena. So I'm like commuting back and forth day and night this big triangle around la and the freeways here are just horrendous no matter what time of day or night right i mean you know working wasn't was exhausting it was driving (laughs) back and forth and you know schedules change and all of a sudden you got to drive from chatsworth to mariana del rey and back to shock and up to chatsworth Mm. oh my god it's horrendous and and weren't you also doing a second unit on phantasm too 
Yeah, but that was concurrent pretty much with first unit. You know, it might be a smaller crew. Like they'd, for example, shoot most of the scene and release the crew except for the essential camera. And they would shoot effect shots that took longer to prep. Yeah, that was all second unit, but it's pretty much going on at the same time. Your 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 Instagram um, also has lots of pic- great pictures of you putting makeup on Angus Grimm, uh, and it has and, pictures of cats too. Yeah, <laughs> lots of pictures of cats. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're gonna save that. We're gonna save that for the next time we talk. Okay. It'll be all cats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds yeah. Good. Exactly. No, I'm gonna get Three to the cat podcast. questions. Um, what was it? What was it like mm-hmm. to work with Angus uh, Scrim? Oh man. I, I, uh, right. Of the four of us on this call, there's only two of us that have actually met him. So, um, really, Eric, uh, Erica, Erica had uh, lunch with uh, Angus uh, when we oh, first met wow. up to LA. Yeah. Well, then, then you guys know what a terrific man he was. Uh, yeah, what he was a, a sweetheart. sweetheart you know? <laughs> um, what you see is what you get. I mean, the the whole persona of the tall man being this wicked evil. It's so far from him. It's unbelievable because he's the most kind, gentle person you could ever hope to imagine i i always loved working with him just to, it was great when i when they were doing phantasm three and i had to recast his head and i knew he was coming to my workshop i was so excited to see him again you know yeah just great wonderful man and you got that phantasm two job because of evil dead too right yes sam Raimi recommended me that's uh, i got a phone call the blue from don Message machine thing, actually, but when as soon as you said Don Coscarelli and I'm working on a project, I kind of thought, hmm, I wonder if it's a sequel to Phantasm. <laughs> then he gives me a right. screenplay. The screenplay is titled, I think initially it was titled Morningside or American Gothic. It kind of switched between the two. It was never called Phantasm 2. But when I read it, uh, I mean, page one or two, it says, a tall man, read thin. I mean, gee, I wonder what that is. <laughs> and of course... By this time, Don, you know, told me what it was and swore me to secrecy. And I called my friend Steve Patino because I knew that Steve would be the guy to do the silver spear effects. And uh, I said to see Steve, I'm doing this movie. I can't tell you what it is because the director said not to say anything, but you want to be involved. And I'm going to recommend you. So you're going to get a call, hopefully, from this guy named Roberto, Roberto Casada, who's the producer. And Steve got the job. It took a few weeks or whatever. And we're still sworn to secrecy. Um, this is all before NDAs, which are, you know, useless anyway. Mm-hmm. These days, everybody's yeah, going to do an NDA. Back then, it was like, here's the script. Please don't talk about it. Okay. How hard is that? You keep your word. You shut <laughs> right. up. Right. right. That's, that's what it... So Steve and I had to keep quiet about what the project was whenever people were visiting our respective workshops. And we'd, but we'd want to talk about it because we're working on it. And like other people around, so our code word for Phantasm 2 was, uh, what's the name of that uh, song? Love Resurrection, the song by Allison Moyette, I believe her name is. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. this corny 80s song, Love Resurrection. And that became our code word between Steve Patino and I for Phantasm 2. We'd be in the shop and there's other people around and Steve would turn and he'd go, Mark, what time are we on set tomorrow for Love Resurrection? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Steve had heard the song on the radio and that became, you know, our code word. It was kind of, 
kind of funny, but every time I hear the song, which is Once in a Blue Moon, I think of that crazy time. And the other picture you have on your Instagram from that is you with the sphere going right into your forehead, which oh, yeah. is, any fan of that movie is like, oh, man, that would be so, so iconic. Cool. Yeah. So cool. No, that was, a, that was a case of just hanging out on set between shots. There's a little time to kill. Oh, let's line up and get our pictures taken with the sphere. Yeah, sure. <laughs> No, it's so time. cool such a cool such yeah. a cool looking picture yeah um, i got my head drilled by the sphere <laughs> when um just real quick uh another sort of new world-esque question because you were working on evil dead 2 with greg nicotero and howard Berger, and then they get pulled off to go do creep show 2 did you no, ever get, get pulled for off that, or no they were working they're my employees on evil dead 2 they were okay, my crew okay Right. Yes. But they didn't. They didn't. They didn't get pulled off. They bailed. They bailed on me. Oh. Okay. I, they they left me holding the ball for the last two weeks of shooting on Evil Dead Two, and I had to bring in Brian Tausick to help me finish up the show. Got it. Okay. So that, that created a whole whole different situation. And because uh, I was I was wondering why why you hadn't been if you had been contacted about it as well. No, Ed French was a friend of mine. He was doing, that was his show, and he brought in those guys to help him prep, but his prep overlapped with me finishing shooting of Evil Dead 2. Okay. Okay, interesting. Okay, I just didn't, I just wanted to know about that situation. I thought that, that was like, I was like, why didn't you get called? That seems odd. Um, but now I now I know. <laughs> no, I never thought about, you know, getting called on that or not. They called me to do, uh, or to at least bid on, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, but uh, my price was a little high. I didn't get it. But Dick mm. recommended Dick Smith recommended me for that. Um, just the way the cookie crumbles. That yeah, happens. That's what happens sometimes. Um, I know we're probably trying to wrap up here a little bit, and I just had a couple uh, ending questions for you. And one of them is, what is one of the biggest misconceptions that uh, people have about what it is that you do? You mean the makeup effects? Correct. Aspect? Yes. Yes. Um. Maybe these days, uh, there's probably confusion about two things. One is prep time, and the other would be CGI. Now, as far as prep, you have all these shows that came out starting, I don't know, 15 years ago. The uh, makeup effects shows, what are they called? You know, where they have the contestants come on, and they have to build something overnight. Oh, sure. Yeah. Face-off. Face-off. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah. So... That created misconceptions because when that show came out, I mean, the show, I'd never seen it. Finally, I checked it out and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this is a, a joke. Shows like Face Off started to give the misconception or the bad impression to new producers that, you know, we whipped this stuff uh, out of our hats overnight because mm -hmm. that's what they had to do for Face Off. Mm -hmm. And I actually got a call around that time. Somebody wanted an alien something it was actually jpl called me believe it or not they wanted alien arms for all their buildings outside and well, how long do you need for this you know a week or a couple of days well no we don't just you know put this in a mix it in a cup and you know next day you have it well do you have something you can grab off a shelf no <laughs> and i never used to get that early on in the 80s Huh. Everybody, every producer, every producer knew you needed prep time. You needed mm -hmm. months to create yeah. these things. You get young producers who grew up on God knows what MTV where everything is instant. And they think you literally created overnight. And why do you need the cast of the actor? What is sculpture? 
No, a smart producer and director will understand how practical and CGI both work and when you use one or the other or when you mix the two, you meld them together. A lot of young directors, I think, that have only grown up on computer think everything. It can, be, it can solve anything, create anything. I guess those mm. are the two main misconceptions. Yeah. Mark, anything from you, Erica? I think I was just going to, uh, one of the questions I had is, you know, when you look at your resume and, and look at all the, the movies that you've worked on, you've worked on such, uh, uh, you've had such an, uh, an impressive career and worked on so many iconic uh, movies, special effects movies, horror movies, everything in between. Like what, what is the, I guess maybe not even movie, but what's the special effect that you look at and say, like, that was your favorite piece of work. Maybe it's not what, everyone else looks at but it's like when you look at it you're like i love the way that turned out it turned out exactly the way i envisioned it oh i guess i'd have to say henrietta and you that too that was you know creating an, an entire character a person who didn't look a thing like the actor underneath mm -hmm. and i created that pretty much 100 percent by myself except for the contact lenses and making the mold i did all the sculpture all the painting all the makeup uh, Kurtzman helped me with applying it, um, but essentially that was my baby all the way, and it worked really well. Yeah. So yeah, I'm proud of that. Oh, this is odd little things that sometimes people never realize. There's an effect, and it works very well. It's almost invisible, and they don't know what they've seen. I can't think of an instance off the top of my head, but uh, no, I don't. I never thought in terms of a favorite effect. There's one effect I really wanted to work the first time, and that was uh, showing up on the set of Evil Dead 2 after prepping for months, and there was a lot riding on me, and I was feeling the pressure, and we hadn't even rolled on any effects, and there was, you know, 700 shots in the film and 135 or makeup effects related. <laughs> so I was feeling the pressure, and I showed up, and the first gag, first makeup effect we shot was Bruce, his evil hand dragging him across the floor, and he stabs it. And I tested that hand to make sure it worked really well, because he drags himself, drags himself, then he stops. And we, I replaced his hand with a, a gelatin hand with a chamber in it to bleed. And I tested it, and I'm just praying this, this thing works beautifully. But if it doesn't, you know, I'm going to kind of look pretty bad, and that's going to set the tone for how Sam Raimi views me the rest of the show, and Bruce, who's also a producer. Mm -hmm. So uh, I was feeling, you know, I had knots in my stomach, and we go to shoot the gag, and Bruce stabs the hand, it squirts, and he pulls the knife out, and squirts more, and the hand is moving, and a roll cut, and Bruce turned to everybody and goes, by God, that sucker worked. <laughs> and inside, I'm just like... Thank God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it set a good tone for me. Like they knew I could deliver and like, wow, okay, it's going to be, it took half the pressure off right there in that instant. It was great. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's well, awesome. I can, I can very much appreciate, you know, there, there are some people that in that moment would be patting themselves on the back and saying that, and looking at it and saying, yeah, that looked, that, that worked perfectly. I like you would have just been like, please have this work and when it did be like yeah, that's man me. That's what a what sense of relief was, i was praying inside and it was me it wasn't me that said it worked great it was bruce which was made it different right. because he was he was the actor he was the producer and like for him to be satisfied 
that's all I needed to hear. I felt, okay, we're going to be fine. You know, don't worry anymore. Yeah, it, was a, it was a big moment for me. So uh, I, I guess conversely, if there was an effect that you could go back and redo, what would it be? I don't know if I'd actually redo an effect. I'd probably convince Chuck Russell to shoot the Nightmare on Elm Street 3, baby. You know, he, he didn't want to shoot it because he felt it would offend every Jewish member of the audience because he wanted to look like an Auschwitz baby. And I made it that times 500 mm-hmm. and it freaked him out. Um, I guess for an effect that didn't work, we were shooting the El- Elm Street 2 scene of Freddy Krueger coming out of Mark Patton's body, Jesse. Yeah. And we've got this whole fake body. You know, part of it's the actor, part of it's fake. By the end, it was actual Robert England coming out of a fully mechanical body with, with real arms sticking out. And the head is whipping back and forth. And in all the prep and the frantic stuff going on, somebody forgot to glue the back of the neck with super glue. So it's kind of, there's a couple shots where you kind of see it. It looks a little thick or weird. And, you know, it's just a little, little oversight. Most people don't notice it, but I notice it. Yeah. Right. Just weird little things that go. And I'd go back in time and say yes to Heather's. That's what I'd read. <laughs> <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, Mark, thank you so much for this. This this was amazing. Yeah. I really appreciate Anytime. you. Uh, which, uh, I wish I'd had a chance to swear a little more and tell more funny stories. But other than that, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's so many movies you've worked on that I want to ask, but I'm trying to make it about New World Pictures. And, you know, you had such well, a... Well, no, you've, you've covered New World and you threw in a few that I'd forgotten were New World releases. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, quite amazing. Quite amazing. Yeah. I, I was surprised at a couple. I was surprised you worked on Courage. I was one that I was like, oh, wow. I didn't realize that that, that was when you no, worked on them. I was on set every single day with Bart Mixon on that. Yeah. And Bart, of course, I met on a new world picture, Forbidden World. Yep. There you yeah. go. And, and, do, and do you look back on a, with a, a a good deal of fondness on the that time in New World? I mean, obviously, you met good friends. Oh, yeah. And... Yeah. Every new world picture was a blast. And uh, yeah. I mean, like I said, I. I have, I struggle sometimes to remember a movie I was only on for a few days, or maybe the people were difficult, or, you know, it just wasn't that fun. But when I think back of Forbidden World and Android, it's, you know, vivid memories, fun people, fun times. Yeah, great memories. And that's us talking to Mark Showstrom. I, what an we incredibly could nice have, guy. We could have talked for another three hours. So, I'm telling yeah. you. Oh, my gosh. We could have talked so to many him good stories. Forever. Yeah. So and he's done so much mm-hmm. and so much stuff. Has such great recall of all these incredible stories and working with all these different people from New World's history. I mean, in addition to all the other work that he's done. It's just as as someone who grew up uh watching horror movies and loving in particular the special effects, the practical effects of horror movies, it just felt like I mean, this was a real treat to be able to talk oh, with yeah. someone with I mean, his his just pedigree and, and his knowledge of how all this stuff works. It was just fascinating. Yeah. I love that we uh, were able to talk about so much New World stuff with him outside of Forbidden World and Android, but even Raw Courage. This is the first person we talked to that worked on Raw Courage, which is amazing. We haven't even talked about that movie yet. So it was just a, a real pleasure. And he, he's just such a, a great guy. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Mark Showstrom. And we will see you next time on the New World Pictures podcast. Bye, everybody.